Hello and welcome to New Active's Agri-Food Podcast. I'm Natasha Foote. And I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from New Active's Agri-Food News Team. So welcome back. This week we were thinking about what to cover for the podcast this week and we basically came up with anything interesting. So we read this article on The Economist on uh, basically food supply chain. So on how Italian food companies are feeding Germany during the pandemic. So we thought it was a good story. And we contacted your active transport editor, Sam Morgan, and we asked if he knew someone to speak about this issue. No, I mean, I'm joking. We are here today with the, the one and only Sam Morgan. Welcome, Yeah, Sam. I think a, a better, better introduction, we should have your active star vlogger, oh. transport expert. Oh, guys. Second is... best punster of the Euractive News team. Well, that's to be that's to be decided, isn't it? Indeed, <laughs> I'd say no, third. Uh... I'd say third. Oh, oh third. That's well, even harsher. Despite these, you know, un, uh, unprompted attacks on my, uh, my reputation here, it's an honour to be with you guys. I'm, uh, I'm a long-term fan of your uh, your work, despite Gerardo's <laughs> constant attacks on me on Twitter. As uh, it's not true, it's not everyone... true. <laughs> yes, I'm excited that our two hubs are finally merging and that we're creating this yes. union. Um, we're bridging these two hubs. Yeah, big fan it's of beautiful. unions, as you know, love unions. <laughs> so, and, uh, l- listeners may remember Sam for a series of tweets which were basically you, but it's The Simpsons, where he compared you leaders and characters of The Simpsons. So we can also anticipate here that you have in your pipeline another thread of this kind. Gerardo, I, I couldn't possibly, possibly comment on such speculation okay. at this time. <laughs> However, I can reassure all of my fans, and I know there are many, many of them, that uh, mm. there will be more to come in this field. Okay, and okay. Thank goodness. Yes. That's, that's the, first news, the first news of the podcast this week. That's a pretty, pretty big scoop for you guys, actually, I'd Exclusive. Say. Yeah. More to come. Uh, yeah. Excellent. Uh, yeah. It's actually our saviour this week because, again, we really got nothing else to talk about. So, Sam, to make you feel at ease, let's start with a comment on this news. So, basically, uh, Barilla, the food company, supplies 22% of pasta and 39% of sauces eaten in Germany and they need two between two and three dedicated trains from from Parma to Ulm uh, so I mean it it is a sort of the dark side of the supply chain this transport aspect I, mean, I have I have here a figure from the commission saying that about 1.3 billion tons of uh, primary agricultural, forestry, and fishery products were transported on roads, actually. And in the Farm to Fork, the new food food policy of the commission, they say that with a view to enhance resilience uh, uh, of regional and local food system, the commission, in order to create shorter supply chains, will support reducing uh, dependence on long-haul transportation. So uh, can you tell us a bit more about this issue with transports and and the agri-food supply chain well the like you said the economist article that sort of sparked all this is is a fantastic read because it opens up all these possibilities for uh, food-based puns and everything and i'm sure tash was spending many many hours working on this i've got my own to begin with the great spaghetti <laughs> western express i think that's pretty good wow. um but yes it i mean it is a great sort of illustrative example of how you know, we need to move a hell of a lot of food, goods, services, cargo around the EU, around Europe. And at the moment, road transport is pretty much king because, I mean, a supply chain is only as good as its profitability, right? And at the moment, when it comes to rail, you are, when you're building your business case for sending stuff from your factory to the consumer, it is a pricey option to an extent because of all these things you have to consider, like track charges and, you know, guaranteeing that if you ship, a hundred tons of something, a hundred tons of it is going to be um, bought and sold. Whereas if you put, you know, a cargo container on the back of a, a heavy lorry and send it from Romania to France, you have, you know, you've got tolls to worry about driver pay, but you also probably can make a better case for selling that product. And I mean, the EU has been banging on about, you know, the shift to rail of cargo being put on trains instead for ages now. I mean, it, it 
it was always the case in, in years gone by where cargo would arrive by rail, it would be put on the back of a lorry, it would be sent to the to the, the shop, bing, bang, bong, you know. But um, it's not happened because of all these various reasons about, you know, why why is high-speed rail not a huge thing at the moment in Europe? It's because the railway system is a ridiculously complex beast. Um, so there are so many factors to worry about there. I mean, next year is going to be the European year of rail in the EU. They've got all of these plans at the moment to do events and sort of boost rail standing in, in our transport systems and how it's a real sustainable kind of uh, option compared to planes and train, you know, planes and cars and all this kind of thing. I mean, one of the most tangible things they have got planned is that they want to create um, a label for goods. And I know how you guys love your labels, especially you, Gerardo, um, <laughs> where you would, you know, you would have a green label for, say, your bag of pasta. Barilla would be able to put this label on their their goods. Um, and then it would basically tell consumers, look, you're eating this pasta. It's been shipped here by, by rail. It's um, got far less uh, sort of emissions guilt over it compared to, you know, other products maybe. Um, so don't worry about it, buy it. It's a nice green product. And then you build this kind of demand then where, oh, shops will see that more people are buying these products because they're more environmentally minded in this future that we're creating. So then more people will use rail because there'll be more demand. Um, I mean, a all of this a was train great. reaction, you could say. It's very good, yes. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but they, you know, this kind of thing has been around for a long time where, um, you know, people have tried to stimulate passenger demand in a sort of similar way where you incentivize people to go on trains more, they use them more, they put more services on and you create this virtuous, this sort of virtuous circle of, of demand and supply. Um, it can work with goods, but there are so many moving parts, you know. But when it comes to, you know, what it's in the, I mean, in the commission's pipeline, because, I mean, yeah. you said that uh, they were committed to, uh, you know, bettering the situation. So uh, we can say there is a, a train of truth in uh, in uh, in uh, their commission. <laughs> there, yeah. No, I mean, there's nothing. I mean, you know how the commission is where they won't commit to anything until, you know people have really told them to at this point it's that they're committed to doing a feasibility study for this label i mean mm. you know read into that what you want about how long it'll take how much it'll cost what the results will be you know maybe they'll propose something in a year or maybe they'll never propose something you know it's it's but that's where it's the conversation exactly, steam ahead. exactly it is it is very much almost you know leaves on the line and derailed and all this kind of stuff um but yeah it it's that i mean the commission wants more action on the railways because it unlocks all of its priorities you know climate change shorter supply chains all of this kind of stuff creates jobs um but the fact that national regulators and governments and you know state-owned firms have such a high kind of influence over these kind of matters means that they're you know to be fair to them their their hands are kind of tied on this so it's going to move quite slowly hmm. in terms of even just just from this kind of barilla, the effect of the barilla um, express, Albert, what, what did you call it? The spaghetti? The <laughs> great spaghetti, spaghetti Western Express. Uh, yeah. Spaghetti Wars. <laughs> uh, it's actually, since it's coming to, it, it's going to Germany. I remember now probably our German listeners maybe don't, don't agree with what I'm about to say, but when I took oh. German classes at university, it's a long story, but I remember that the teacher um, it was explaining the importance of, uh, you know, certain words in in the vocabulary. And he mentioned the fact that in Italy we have like thousands way to say pasta, kind of pasta. And actually in uh, in uh, in Germany, there were only three way, which is basically spaghetti for, you know, the, the long ones and uh, and macaroni for the short one. But with the only exception of Fusilli, mm -hmm. because Fusilli is uh, probably the, the only, I mean, at time, uh, kind of pasta that, that uh, is, is known in Germany. So, I mean, I, I vote for Fusilli Express. Fusilli Express. Okay. Oh, I see where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, the Fusilli Express then. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was wondering, like, what the, even just on, on just the Fusilli Express, what the kind of environmental uh difference would be the, the effect that this is having environmentally you know in terms of like emissions you have mm -hmm. an idea of 
I mean, yeah. I mean, any any cargo that's shipped by rail is is in any kind of situation going to be far less far less polluting than sending it by road. I mean, you know, depending on the route it takes, whether or not the line is electrified and all this kind of stuff, and where the power that electrifies the line comes from. You know, is it coal being burned gas or is it from renewables? You know, it's kind of hard to say it's X percent cleaner than sending it by truck, but hmm. almost, you know, 99.9% of the time, it will be far cleaner because of just the volumes that you are shipping. You know, like I said before, you know, the only reason that this stuff can be sent by rail in the first place is because of the sheer volume of it. And, um, you know, you send one train of, I can't remember how many tons of the pasta were on board the, the Fusilli Express, but, you know, sending that by road would be, well, A, not manageable, and B, you'd need hundreds and hundreds of trucks, you know, which are all far more polluting by, you know. Um, but that's kind of, that is one of the things that the, the commission or whoever could probably work on at the moment is that Eurostar is a, a sort of a prime example at the moment, right? They're one of their sort of USPs is that they will say to passengers, compared to taking the plane from London to Paris, if you take the Eurostar, your journey will be something like 90% uh, cleaner. Because they've got, you know, it's a very set route. They've got all of the data to say where the energy is coming from. So they can say to passengers, this is how green your journey will be. Where it comes to cargo, because of how big the network is and all of these kind of different things about, you know, where's the power coming from? It's kind of difficult to actually say to producers, you know, you can say to your consumers that your um, your products are this cleaner than the equivalent. So that's another reason why it is kind of hard to to sort of create this demand and sort of the business case for rail is, is that you haven't really got the data to to back it up. Whereas, you know, like with the, the nutritional labels and everything, I know that's a really complex topic as well. At least you do have the kind of the pure, you know, this product is healthier than this one by this much because of these things. Mm-hmm. Oh. Whereas, whereas with emissions, it, I mean, it's such a, a complex, horrible thing to be involved with, like climate numbers and all this kind of stuff. You know, it, it is it is mind boggling. Um, mm. but as soon as they can actually harness this kind of information and give it to people, I mean, this is the whole thing that the commission and the European union is supposed to be good at, right. Is, is sort of getting all of the complex stuff together and then communicating with people. I mean, there is a bit of a gap there, but it is something that they can actually do something about. So yeah, that, that, I think that's where they're sort of the commission as well can have sort of this impact if they mm-hmm. can manage it anyway. And. And regarding the fact that the next year is supposed to be the European year of, of rail, right? Yes. So it's it. What should we expect from from this uh, year, this European year of rail, uh, in terms of uh, you know promoting? Uh, yeah. Well, it's it's a bit of steering the conversation. Yeah, it's a, it, that is probably the main thing. It is it's going to be a big sort of golden PR opportunity for rail because. I think something the budget is something like 8 million euros, which um, is nothing, obviously. Um, and the European Parliament and the Commission kind of had to fight the member states to even get that. Um, so you've got the label that I mentioned. That's one of the things they're committed to sort of investigating. And then the other thing is that they want to put together this thing called a connectivity index. It already exists for, for aviation in the EU where every single airport and all the routes are all mapped. So if you really want to, you can go on there and see, oh, I can get from here to here and it takes this long, blah, blah, blah. They want to do the same for rail. Um, and it would go some way towards sort of unlocking that data thing that I mentioned, you know, where if you are a business owner that is near uh, Foggia, for example, where Mr. Fortuna had a, a random, A random city. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you would be able to say, look, I'm a producer. I want to ship all of my stuff to the south of France because there's some sort of market there. Is it possible to go by rail? And then this index would be able to tell you then, you know, that, that's the kind of application you could do. And also then there are all these kind of things with, you know, if you're a if you're a passenger and you want to get from one country to another, it is currently kind of difficult because there are so many websites and so many data sets and so many different books that you can look at. And it's all this information mm. and it's not really in one place. And that's kind so of you could the... Say... Sorry, I was <laughs> going to come with the pun. That's why <laughs> I paused. To do an actual, actual conversation. With <laughs> I was going to say you could help. You could say this index is helping them choo- choose. Ah, oh, you've done yourself there. That's good. <laughs> Did you prepare your pun in advance, Dan? Because no. this is no. like cheating, you. Know? 
We're going to have to... <laughs> no, I'm just number one pun star, I told you. We're going to have to have a video on this, I think, just to but sort I... of clarify that there isn't any sort of doping going on. Oh, but I, I really couldn't keep a freight face there. can't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for derailing the conversation, Natasha, with your excellent puns. Um, I said I'm sorry. I'm not really sorry. In in other sort of things for this European Euro Rail, um, it is quite badly timed for rail, you have to say, because at the moment with coronavirus, nobody's really taking trains in the sort of volume that they were before. You know, I mean, Eurostar's doing one... Uh, one trip a day from Brussels to London at the moment when it was doing, you know, there were 50 trains in total going out of London and Paris and, and all this kind of stuff. And um, instead of instead of this year being about boosting rail from the point it was at back in February, whenever the hell, you know, that was, it's going to be about recovering from this virus and almost getting back to the point it was before, which was not the idea of this. It was to, you know, to create this sort of level playing field with, with, um, taking your car and or taking the plane um i mean i know that some some sort of people in in sort of rail wanted to delay it until 2022 instead but of course you know the the speed at which brussels kind of works that means that once something is decided it's decided um so yeah and um that's pretty much it for the for that year it's it's going to be it's basically going to be whatever people make of it there's no there's no real concrete objective. There's no tangible outcome, no key takeaway that they are foreseeing. It's going to be sort of, well, here's a year of events, 8 million euros, see what you can do with it. So, uh, thanks, Sam. Uh, you hit the rail on the head, but... Uh, oh, that feels written down. That feels like it was written down. That does feel quite prepared. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to say that, oh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to pull this off. <laughs> In my head, it makes sense. This this idea of, of using trains to transport agri-food products does does seem quite engineous. <laughs> that was far. I went far. We've wrapped up this segment on a low point there, I'm afraid. <laughs> no. We spare uh, Tash from... Uh from uh, this disgraceful no I'm joking but uh, we move to the other news because I mean the main event this week in the in the EU agri-food bubble was actually a virtual meeting between the executive vice president Franz Timmermans commission executive, executive vice president and a group of uh, young climate activists uh, headed by Greta Thunberg. So Sam, stay with us as you also cover climate issues. So, I mean, what happened, of course, if you're listening to this podcast, it's highly likely that you're aware that the negotiators of the European Parliament and uh, the Council are currently discussing uh, the reform of the Common Agricultural Policy, which is the main EU um, subsidies program for farmers. Uh, which is supposed to start in 2023 after two years of, uh, of transitional period. So the proposal now being discussed, uh, uh, it uh, was criticized by environmental NGOs, uh, climate activists, who basically ha- asked to scrap the original proposal. The, you know, there's the hashtag, you've probably seen it on Twitter, scrap the cap. And uh, in order to preserve the main objectives of the European Green Deal, which is the EU's flagship environmental policy. So Timmermans has hinted uh, publicly at this option uh, in the past weeks. Uh, This option would stop the talks uh, on the cap, leaving the EU executive to restart the legislative process by tabling a new document. Uh, there, There were strong protests from negotiators, so the rest of the commission, von der Leyen, the president von der Leyen, the food safety commissioner, Kiriakides, agriculture commissioner, Wojciechowski, distanced themselves from Timmermans' comments uh, in a bid to defuse a potential institutional crisis. Uh, they were saying that uh, they, they're not considering to retract the cap. So things, things are evolving and also the Greens at the European Parliament have now changed their target from scrapping to fixing the cap. The activists uh, had this meeting yesterday and they say that they remain in favour of a withdrawal of the, cor- the current proposal. So these are some of the quotes that, that Greta 
uh, gave during during a press conference that I at, I attended uh, on uh, Thursday. The first one, the time for small steps in the right direction is over. The second one, we need to treat the climate crisis as a crisis and not pretend that we can fix the cap with small, quick fixes. She was referring to the position of the Greens in the parliament. And the third one, the last one was MEPs are more than happy uh, to vote for targets set 10 or 20 years in the future. But when it is something to impact right here, right now, they won't touch it. So uh, I I would say, Sam, it's basically the the same narrative that we uh, see also in the climate uh, debate. That's right. I mean, if you take the, I mean, what's the other thing that um, Greta's been sort of heavily involved with in terms of the EU? It's the 2030 overall climate target, right? If you go back months and months and months, maybe years, EPP group, largest group in the European Parliament, would have been probably largely uh, completely against updating the target as it currently is, which is 40%. You know, they've got their industries to think about, they've got their uh, voters and all this kind of stuff. You can't touch that. Maybe we'll go to 45% because that's what the commission's numbers say is possible. Um, Fast forward, and the European Parliament very recently voted in favor of 60%. That's a huge, huge leap. And halfway in between those two things, you've got Greta Thunberg and other people talking about the, the European Union's overall climate reduction target, right? That's not something that in past years you would have seen on the front page of newspapers or the most read stories on different websites. So even though she was asking for something like 80% and a lot of you know Greens even were nowhere near that high, you've got this sort of ratcheting effect that has clearly happened because it, it's worked. I mean, the you know member states are all meeting next month at the UCO to, to probably sign off on 55%. And then you'll have your trilogs and all this kind of stuff. And 55% will probably be the top target. But what she's doing, you can probably make a strong case for what she's doing is working. And it's just a pure negotiating strategy. You ask for the cap to be withdrawn, keep the pressure on, and you've got enough political will from people then to actually tweak it, change it, make different kind of alterations to it, even though they're not going to withdraw it. And it's just it's just pure politics in a way. Um, whether or not you know that's her rationale for for being this involved with it is another thing, of course. But it, it's having a real world effect. You know, I, I think that people who maybe criticise Greta for just being you know a, a surly little kid that doesn't go to, doesn't go to school are completely wide in the mark in that way. She is she is creating change. Um, and as far as Timmermans goes, I mean, he's a politician, and I think this kind of, you know, this this dispute or whatever between him and the other commissioners and von der Leyen is just a classic, um, you know, if there was an episode of, of European Commission House of Cards, this would probably make a good one, where you've got, you know, you go back to when Franz Timmermans wanted to be European Commission president, his whole shtick was people believing in him, and, um, you know, young people especially, you know, he's a bit like Father Christmas in that way. He looks like him. And, and if people stop believing in him, then he doesn't exist anymore. So the fact that he is playing this game of entertaining the idea of, of reduce, of um, withdrawing this policy is just this, you know, this classic barely more, you know, how can we make the EPP do stuff without sort of being in direct contact with them? You do it through these channels. So I think in that way, it, there's a real sort of, there's a real effect going on here. Um, to what extent it will pay off. I mean, we'll have to see it. It's paid off with the climate target already, I would say. Um, and then just on your, on the last point about her, you know, saying that how MEPs and people um, are only willing to have a conversation about this stuff if it's about targets that are 20, 30, 40 years down the line. That's kind of how the whole thing works, unfortunately. I mean, the, the 2050 climate neutrality target, I mean, that owned, I mean, I remember talking to, you know, uh, commission officials and whatnot at the time when they were drafting this thing. The biggest weapon they had was its long-term um, perspective. Is that they knew they would be able to sort of buy support from the Czechs, from the Poles, from the Hungarians more easily because of how long in the future it will be. But the beauty of it is, as soon as you get these people to commit to these targets, you have to get to them, and then you've got to make sure that this trajectory and this roadmap that get you there is all filled in. And that's what we're seeing at the moment is that. A lot of these countries have signed up to stuff and now they have to sign up to other things because they'll be breaking their first commitment. You know, that's how you sort of build this this sort of 
you know, they, they are not putting the horse before the carriage in a way they're doing it the other way around, but it's actually working in a way. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's how I see how, how I see sort of this sort of dynamic at the moment when you look at it through climate policy is that there's a lot going on, basically. You mentioned the fact that, I mean, she had a great impact uh, over the past years. Uh, but at the same time, uh, as you said, we don't see the common agricultural policy on, on newspapers. So she started dealing with the with the cap, uh, I think, during the vote in the European Parliament, so probably at the end of October, let's say. And she also attacked the, the, the media sector for not covering this kind of issue. Uh, and again, she didn't listen to our podcast. That's yeah. <laughs> Hi, Greta. And, Hi, Greta. Hi, Greta. Hi. Out there. <laughs> and I mean, as, as a media, but also as, a, as an observer, um, I can say that nothing's really changed in this month in the, in the sense that, I mean, we are specialized media and, and we feel that we are still the only one dealing with this stuff, right, Tash? Well, yeah. I, I mean, I do think in, in some respects, you know, Greta's put the cap a little bit more on the map um i think lots of people didn't really know what it was before especially a lot of the you know maybe some of the younger people that were focused on the climate debate it's interesting to see them talk about the cap now um but yeah you're right i mean it's it's a it's a big beast the cap it's very specialist it's very technical i think it's difficult to figure out exactly what's going on indeed i mean it's we haven't seen this huge impact on uh, on the public opinion. So it, it also means mm-hmm. that, I mean, to have a good narrative, to have a, a good impact, you also need to have a, a, a topic that could be communicated. I mean, we're struggling every day with uh, how to communicate in, in a, in a rash, non-rational, but I mean... Well, accessible way. Right? Accessible, yeah. yeah. Summed uh, up the whole of journalism. <laughs> yeah. But, Another another thing that actually I noticed is that, um, of course, I mean, correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, Sam, but it was probably the first press conference she gave. I mean, she has always been like used to be chased by by media rather than chasing media. So I mean, it was extremely weird for me having such an icon, no. In, in, a, in a virtual press room with journalists that you normally meet at the Agrifish Council or, or you know, or, or, or super specialized or almost, you know, um, belonging to the, the Brussels bubble, uh, media belonging to the Brussels bubble. So the fact that she now needs to rely on, on the media, it's also uh, probably because they underst- she understood that She's not having the impact, the expected impact on uh, on public opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, that... to be f- she only started talking about the cap. Uh, what is it you said mm, during the plenary? No, yeah, on the end of October, basically. Oh, yeah, I guess she's trying to, you know, get everything, get the conversation, uh, move the conversation up into gear, and uh, another plan. Ah, okay. uh... um, no, exactly. I didn't build on this momentum. I didn't Into get the... gear. Ah, okay, it's, okay, okay, it's okay. back on the transport thing. We're not, we're not yeah, on the yeah, cap, yeah. But Keep up, go. please, Gerardo. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's definitely that's definitely a fair point. Is that she? Um, I mean, I you know, I don't want to speculate about what Greta Thunberg's strategy is or her comms plan or or anything like this. You know, I mean, she could mm. just be a a young girl who's trying to do something good in the world, or she could have a bit more of a calculated approach to it. I mean, I, I don't know, but um, you know, it is certainly true that she probably does understand that to keep people interested i mean we know i mean you can cover something for you know a few months and then suddenly people aren't interested anymore so then you have to have a conversation with yourself about well do i report on things that i'm interested in i think other people should be interested in or do i report on things that only people are interested in um Mm -hmm. and she probably understands that she does have to I mean, I remember going to one of her first, she was at the, she was at the Strasbourg plenary, when was this, over a year ago or something like that, maybe her the first time she was there. And it was, you know, she gave a statement, she was, she was hustled out of there because, I mean, she was a lot younger then as well. I mean, you don't want hundreds of journalists crowding around, um, you know, a young girl like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, she's gonna, if she wants to, well, you know, stay relevant and stay a part of the conversation and, and keep the sort of influence and power she does have, or that I at least perceive her to have, she's going to have to adapt to what people want to hear from her. 
and you know the very fact that like you said Gerardo so many people so many journalists turned up to that press conference and I assume asked her pretty decent questions shows that she does have the she does have the legitimacy to sort of occupy this role you know she isn't just this this upstart young girl who isn't going to school when she should be that a lot of people used to accuse her of being um so the fact that and i would i mean on your point about how you know the cap isn't in the in the media and whatnot and all this kind of stuff it's definitely you know you don't open the new york times and see it on the second page or, or all this kind of stuff but i would definitely say yeah, that there was a more, good reporting on cap yeah uh, i mean they, yeah. the, one year the ones, ago yeah they're the ones that blew it all open and everything right i mean it, yeah. it's it's um yeah, but it's great it's great that she's talking about i mean kind of shows also her seriousness of of everything she's doing she's she's looking at the nitty-gritty of the climate issues yeah. and she's looking at these technical deeply technical kind of policy uh things like the cap i think i think it's great that she's kind of opening these doors for people to start talking about what it is and you know how important it is absolutely yeah. i mean with like the cap as well i mean i remember you know first arriving in brussels and seeing this thing this policy that's been around for decades and mm. even at that point you know the negotiations were ongoing and they're in their 17th round and i thought well you know i can't claim to Jump sort in. of cover this because they've got no idea what i'm doing yeah but then when you quickly you quickly realize that it's always going to be like this it's always going to be inaccessible at first until you jump into it um mm. but does it have to be that way you know i mean it can it be more of a sort of can there be more public ownership over the cap in a way and, and if you know if that's mm. something that she achieves then i think it would be a great thing because then you know this this link with farmers and and food production and, and all these kind of things that come under the cap. I mean, they all start to become a little bit more. You know, it's not just about giving farmers subsidies. It's about creating a system where we all benefit. You know, which at the moment mm. it doesn't seem to be like that. Um, yeah, I'm putting farming in the narrative alongside. Yes. You know, yeah. we all talk about climate change, but talking about the importance of farming. Exactly. I mean, you know, climate has definitely been to use a horrible. Brussels bit of jargon you know it has been mainstreamed over the last few years um everyone wants to talk about it's quite annoying actually you know I was the only one sort of getting little bits of scoops and interesting stuff about things two years ago and now you've got the FT and the Economist and all the wires are all uh you know interested so it's kind of you know it's it's work so sadly it's very it's very yeah exactly communicated too effectively you said that not me and now everyone everyone talks about it you can have that as a scoop (laughs) this is what's going to happen with the cap gerardo after us and our podcast and our our reporting we're going to be like in a few years time everyone's talking about the caps they're irritating i mean you joke but it's entirely it's entirely possible you know with with the way the world is going and and people looking a bit more sort of you know at responsibility and and sort of collective behavior and all this stuff i can't really think of anywhere where agriculture you know anywhere other than agriculture where you do have this kind of um i don't feel that you know when i go to the fridge i don't feel any kind of responsibility about what i've bought or what i'm putting on my plate when i go to book a flight somewhere i do um and there isn't really any sort of reason i don't think that those two things can become sort of similar to one another and and people like greta and and you know there are hundreds of other activists as well you know she's just the, the most sort of infamous at the moment you know that that is what they're trying to achieve and if they can even do half of what has happened with climate over the last few years i think we'll be on the right kind of trajectory should we say maybe once you get your green label from the the year of the rail exactly that's the key to all this guys that is the key to all this key to your heart uh, yeah (laughs) so let's make uh cap great again but just one thing (laughs) before finishing this uh intervention of, uh, of Sam one thing about Timmermans actually the role of Timmermans in the college because as you mentioned he was supposed to be the commission president um, at the same time on the cap file it's like not left alone but von der Leyen basically uh, and also Kiriakides, uh, Wojciechowski they, they all they, they still uh, having the stance against the withdrawal and Timmermans the young activist said actually uh, that Timmermans during the meeting has left the door open for a withdrawal and they say that um, he was uh, as disappointed as as them basically and at the same time they say we are insisting we say that there is no option other than uh, withdrawing the cup because we see that Timmermans is giving us uh, you know some kind of uh, no, he's considering the option to withdraw. So, 
Uh, what do you think yeah. about this this uh you know Timmermans uh remained alone, let's say? I think that Timmermans is actually doing the European Commission a favor when it comes to sort of leaving the door open and, and setting that as basically the commission's negotiating strategy in a way. Because I'm I mean, this is just my personal opinion. I don't think that he is in favor of withdrawing the cap. Because he knows I mean he's a very intelligent man. He knows what that would entail you know the delays the sort of does the the von der Leyen commission want to cash in all this political capital for something like that he knows and i'm sure a lot of other people know is that if this doesn't go through this looks bad on the member states rather than the commission and mep meps to an extent you know because of the subsidies issue and the fact you know this will this won't be something that would be easy to spin as brussels interfering at the end of the day because it will be farmers not getting paid Unlike something like a climate change policy, where it is all all of the power is with the member states at the end of the day. The commission and the MEPs can say whatever they want, but you know the council is the one that can veto it and then basically not pay any kind of price for that because it's just, oh, you know, it just happened in Brussels. Don't worry about it. When it comes to the cap, I would say that by leaving this opportunity of you know withdrawing it, you've got the commission in this position now where it is able probably to get concessions from either MEPs or from the member states about what it thinks that the cap should look a little bit more like compared to, you know, its original proposal or something like this. So, I mean, to what extent this is coordinated, whether this actually is Timmermans alone or this is him in his his role as, you know, executive socialist vice president and von der Leyen can't touch it because of her political family and, and all this kind of stuff. I think maybe we can read something into it that he is he's got the most sort of clout to be able to do this. You know, he's the, he's the green deal czar. His profile perfectly fits this idea of, you know, this socialist and Democrat kind of view that the cap should be fair. It's not fair at the moment. We're not going to agree to something that isn't fair. So, you know, on the one hand, it could just be Timmermans throwing his weight around and, and, you know, finally, because I think since, since von der Leyen took over, there hasn't been any kind of, retribution or revenge for the fact that him or or Margaret de Vestigo were were gazumped by the EPP, you know. So this maybe is is just him getting his own back in a way. Or it could be more of a coordinated push for the commission to basically have a bit more power in any kind of of tweaks and amendments and concessions that they'll they'll seek going forward. That would be my completely unfounded speculation anyway. Well it's a little bit founded, but you know. Love some speculation. I agree, yeah, because I mean, uh, the point is that let's say someone has to do this. Some someone has to act like this because, as you exactly. said, yeah. he's leaving the option open. Because I mean, the what von der Leyen is arguing about the cap, the problematic of the cap proposal, which were proposed by the the previous commission, actually are basically the same uh, arguments used by Timmermans. So the the only addition of Timmermans is considering the legal possibility because it's, it's legal. We, we, we wrote an article last week about, uh, um, you know, whether the commission have has or, or, or doesn't have this power and legal ex- experts confirmed that even at a later stage uh, could, could basically retract the proposal. Um, again, it, as you said, I mean, the only addition in the commission general approach is that the withdrawal is, is still an option. And even if you if you see the wording used by von der Leyen is the commission is not considering, which actually means, I mean, you could also add at this stage exactly. <laughs> at the end. It's not been ruled out even by her. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it's it's very diplomatic way to, and of course, I mean, it's also understandable that Wojciechowski, who represents actually the DG Agri, uh, so basically the, the closest DG to, to farmers, uh, is trying to you know uh, to defuse the, ten, the, the the institutional uh, conflict. So I think it's like uh, we are in in a theater and we are basically watching at the different characters. Uh, uh, basically play this uh, this cap play, you know? So, yeah, you, you touch a very interesting point. 
And I agree with you. It's all, it's all negotiation. Oh, you agree with me. I'm going to put that of in a tweet. Um, <laughs> it's, all, it's all a negotiating game. I mean, it's been a negotiating game that's been going on for the last 50, 60 years, you know, where if the commission wants to be taken seriously as more than just a technocratic civil service, it has to inject this kind of political dimension to it as well. You know, like you said, you know, your excellent article from, from before about the legal aspects of this is the one pole and then there's the, you know, is this politically possible or preferable or, or whatever? And I think we'll probably find out in the coming weeks whether or not, you know, is it worth it? You know, it probably redrawing the cap is not worth it for the commission. But like you said, having the door open means that it can get the things that it probably can realistically get, whether that be, you know, certain concessions from certain member states or, or a bit more safeguards for certain aspects of the cash or, or whatever. You know, if they if they say no, we're not. We're definitely you've got our cast iron guarantee. Um, everyone, we're not going to withdraw this cap. All of their, you know, all of their sort of negotiating power goes. So mm, of course, you know, I, I my personal view is that this is Timmermans being the necessary, not bad guy, but he's he's the the figurehead of this. He needs to be the figurehead. Von der Leyen can't be the figurehead of this, so he, he's perfectly placed to do it. Wojciechowski just isn't, you know, big enough profile for to be to be that. By the way, you can't tweet that I agree with you because this conversation is under embargo until tomorrow. Come on, that wasn't part of the deal. Oh. I will respect your embargo so that I'm not sanctioned at a further time. I mean, it could also be a sneak peek. Maybe it'll make people want to listen. Exactly. Yeah. That now, see, that's in. a proper comms advisor right there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah God. Yeah. There you go. Got to drum up, got to drum up support with the punters. We got, we got to you, make you know? people to talk about the cap. Got to make it accessible, you know. Got to lure them in. <laughs> final, final cap down and final all that. Final cap kind of, down, know? yes. Not exactly final. Another great idea that I had. <laughs> yeah, that was good. That was. Good. I'll, I'll give you that one. That was good. I will also agree with you, Jez. There we go. <laughs> Mutual agreement. So, Sam, it's been an honour to have you on the podcast, and it's been excellent to hear your train of thought on these on these issues. <laughs> Do you do you want to have have anything to say for your sign off for your first appearance on the on the Agri Podcast? First of many, I'm sure. It better be, yeah. For the for the amount that you're paying me, I, I imagine that I'll be back here uh, on uh, regular guest spots. You know, if Gerardo, Gerardo, you know, anything ever happens to Gerardo, I'm more than willing to you know step in as co-host. Oh, that's and, great um, of you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, Thank yeah, you so yeah. Much. Oh, well, decent rates, all this kind of stuff. No, it's been an it's been an honor to be here, guys. Um, I'm very interesting. I'm a, as I said, I'm an avid listener of yours, and I hope everyone else is as well. And um, you know, this idea we were talking about earlier about uh, making these kind of technical, ostensibly boring things more accessible to people, I think you're doing a really good job of that. So kudos. Yeah. Thank you for being here on what is now my podcast. And um, yeah, to everyone listening at home, it's uh, <laughs> keep tuning in, keep listening, keep subscribing, send it to all your friends, and uh, yeah. Maybe Gerardo Fortuna will follow you on Twitter. That would be a great honor. What do you think? And, and, and that's the part where you invite us in your uh, transport in your blog. Blog. <laughs> Of course. Of course. You're more than willing to you know, walk through the background if you like. It's great. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Cameos. Come on, guys. Come on. Is what you're offering us. Yeah, yeah. You can be there for like, you know, if you do a good job, then I can invite you back for a sequel or something like that. You know? so, wow. Okay. We have to sh- show our stuff first. We have to show course. that we're, we're good background props. Of mm. course. I have an editorial okay. process, as you know. So. Sure. Mm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sam. You are most welcome. I will catch you next time. And a news from the Brussels bubble this week. Uh, so this week, the European Food Safety Agency, or EFSA, um, released their latest scientific opinion on uh, plants produced using different genomic editing techniques. And basically, they found that the existing guidance is adequate for these gene editing techniques uh, for their assessment, and that they do not pose any additional hazards compared to conventional breeding or other genetic modification methods. The European Commission also published uh, the feed protein balance sheet for this year, uh, this week, and they found that actually the self-sufficiency rate in the EU of uh, feed protein increased to almost 79%, which is pretty interesting. And the Commission also presented a balance sheet uh, for ethanol for the year uh, 2019, 
um, which found that by far cereals is the main raw material used in the EU, representing nearly 80% of total production, followed by molasses and sugar beet. This week, um, the Council also adopted a decision on the conclusion of the agreement between the EU and uh, the Chinese government on cooperation and protection of geographical indications. And speaking of geographical indications, the Commission has launched a new approach to the way uh, GIs, geographical indications, are protected as part of a broader intellectual property action plan, which is supposed to support the EU's recovery and resilience uh, after the pandemic. So the Commission will look at ways to strengthen, modernize, streamline, and better enforce GIs for agricultural products such as uh, wines, food, and spirits. And lastly, uh, the European Parliament has published the final report of an independent study developed by, developed by uh, INRE and AgroParis Tech, for, of course, for the European Parliament's Agri Committee. It's a very long and dense report, but the final result is actually quite in line with what, what the Commission says, uh, which is basically uh, making the common agricultural policy more coherent where the Green Deal is perhaps the best guarantee for its own sustainability. So this week, we spoke with Daniel Azevedo, who is the Commodities and Trade Director of the EU Farmers Association, Copacajeca, about their recent report uh, about the impact of COVID on the farming sector. And here's what he had to say. Thanks, Daniel, for joining us. And um, I would like to start with um, a general question on the differences between the first and the second wave of the pandemic. So particularly when it comes to the impact on farmers, uh, do, you feel, do you think there are differences or it is kind of following the same patterns? Well, well there are similar points and, and some differences. I would say... Um, the, the measures that have taken by the Commission, the member states, we're talking about green lanes or the guideline for seasonal workers, some of the market measures, they are uh, they are helping. Uh, so it's positive. So the, the, there are less barriers in terms of single market. We also have seen a preparation by the agri-food chain. Uh, so as you know, uh, for agriculture sector, we need always to plan six, nine months ahead what we are sitting today, then uh, uh, what we are doing today, we'll have, we'll have to harvest in the future. So this is obviously having a positive impact on the function of the single market, but there are some situations still in, in place. I would say um, there are some sectors that were not supported, didn't, ge didn't get some EU support in the first uh, uh, market management measures that were put in place. Uh, for example, plant and flowers is one of those sectors, I'll say veal, um, and therefore, there are some similarities uh, with the closure of Eureka, for example, um, there, are, there is a huge impact on, in terms of the high value uh, products uh, that have an impact on, on, on the farmers. And, and there are other sectors like the wine sector, they're still suffering from the impact on the first wave. Um, and so it's very difficult for them to prepare for the second wave when they are still suffering uh, from, the first, from the first wave. And the last point I would add is we are now entering Christmas time. Christmas time is, is very important for high value products. It's very important uh, for the value that the agri-food chain uh, gets from the market. And of course, uh, the measures that are in place will have a huge impact uh, on, on, on a big chunk of the EU agri-food sector. Therefore, we are witnessing a rapid deterioration of the market situation across agricultural sectors. Um, and this comes together with, for example, um, a possible no deal for Brexit, uh, some trade development, we we're just talking about Airbus and Boeing, uh, and some animal health related matters. So therefore, our agriculture markets are under strong pressure. And you mentioned a few um, specific sectors there, like the, the flower sector and the veal sector, but something that caught my eye was um, the issues that's currently uh, in the honey sector. Um, so I wondered if you could elaborate a little bit more on the situation with honey and the expected supply shortage of honey. So what exactly is the extent of the problem here and, and how, how can the EU move to help the sector? Mm -hmm. So uh, this this uh, this year we had uh, uh, lower yield, so we expect... Um, about 40% reduction on, on the output. Uh, this is due uh, to, for example, dr uh, droughts and uh, heavy rain in, in different regions of Europe. So this had an huge impact on production. Um, so what we are we are looking for that this production will then be replaced by 
cheaper imports and, and some of the imports we have raised concerns about them. And therefore, what we are asking from the European Commission is not only we need some promotion support for the sector, this is the long term, of course, we need proper uh, labeling and a stricter control of imports. This would help uh, in the long term, in the long, long run for the sector. And also, Daniel, you mentioned even before uh, the issue of uh, the problem of a uh, no deal Brexit. But what what the report highlights is basically the presence of a combination of risk factors. So trade tension, of course, COVID, uh, no deal Brexit. So uh, which sectors are affected the most uh, by you know, the risk of a cocktail of risk, so basically the perfect storm, uh, perhaps the pygmic sector or, mm-hmm. or the wine sector, considering the Brexit and, mm-hmm. and the trade tensions. So what's your take on this? So uh, on trade tensions, uh, we have uh, there, uh, different sectors that have been affected, uh, including some dairy sector, olives, um, olive oil. Uh, we have a number of sectors that have been uh, impacted by these. Um, when it comes to animal health situation, we have now have an influenza coming again in that season that will impact the poultry production. But in particular, we are also very concerned about what is happening with the pig meat and the health uh, concerns, uh, the development of uh, African swine fever that is going across Europe, and, and the fact that many uh, um, third countries are imposing uh, restrictions on our exports, even from areas that are not affected by the African swine fever. We have uh, big confidence on regionalization that is implemented in Europe and all the biosecurity measures that are implemented. Um, and this is having a very uh, important pressure on, on the pig meat sector, together with, of course, uh, the impact of COVID that has an impact, for example, on slaughterhouses, uh, leading to the closure of certain slaughterhouses. Uh, and this, of course, doesn't enable uh, animals to be slaughtered. Um, and the farmers need to keep them longer um, at their farms. Uh, of course, they have to be fed and very well taken care. Uh, but of course, this will uh, increase uh, the costs and, and, and put pressure on, on the market. Um, of course, the wine sector as well, I forgot, has been, has been really uh, affected by, in particular, by the, the sanctions um, uh, on Airbus and, and Boeing imposed by the United States is one of those sectors that is really struggling. Um, and it, the Brexit, you know, for business people, what we need is, is certainty. We need to, to know that we are going to add uh, the added value from the market that will be enable us to have a return for the investment that is done. Um, and therefore, Brexit is not helping um, because business, they don't know what is going to happen. And now we are talking less than 40 days um, and they need to prepare. Um, and the wine sector together with beef sector, dairy, and, and fruits and vegetables, for example, they, they, they are suffering with this uncertainty. They can't plan ahead. They don't know if they will send uh, products on the 2nd of January. Are they going to be imposed tariffs? Are they going to have to follow? Uh, what kind of regulation they will have to follow? So this is really putting pressure on our, on our sectors. And turning the topic now uh, to something that's particularly dear to Belgium's heart and also to my stomach, and that's potatoes. So the report mentions um, some issues surrounding uh, contract disputes for potatoes and the kind of surplus mm-hmm. of potatoes. Could, could you perhaps elaborate a bit on that? What, what does that mean exactly? We, you know, we have been raising uh, uh, and we are welcoming uh, the fact that the, the, actually the Commission and the European Parliament have moved uh, with some regulation in terms of um, unfair trading practices. Um, so what we are concerned is actually that when we have contracts and when we have a disruption of, of the supply um, uh, and demand, in fact, um, that some of the buyers, they could actually take, try, uh, take advantage of the situation and try attempt to break the contracts um, so that they could buy the potatoes back in the markets a little cheaply uh, in the future. Uh, we don't have a concrete example right now, but we are alerting for this possibility. Uh, we need to make sure that this will not happen. It was also mentioned this issue with the flower sector, uh, because I remember the, in, in the council, I think uh, the one in April or something like that, Mm-hmm. Um, or March, I don't know. Uh, there was this issue with the flower market because uh, it's particularly suffering because it doesn't get any subsidies, like you know, uh, and it 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 doesn't have access to the common market organization regulation. Mm-hmm. So you know, the so 
called safety net in in case mm-hmm. of market mm-hmm. crisis. So uh, there was some kind of uh, interventions by the Commission, particularly um, uh, with the Dutch market in April in, in spring, by the way. Uh, but it seems, I mean, from the report, the report threads that um, the federal sector is still waiting for the EU support promised. So what's happening particularly in, in, in this sector? So for the flower and plants uh, was really devastating. Uh, le- um, spring, the beginning of the spring when the measures were imposed and they could not sell their product. And we had to understand that uh, the majority, 80% of the value that they will make it's in this period, spring, summer. So you have festivities, I uh, have the big holidays, and they have to plan their production for this season. So they could not sell their product. The investment they have made um, is on the product. So if they can't sell it, uh, they will not be able to get a return and, and make investment for the next season. So we have seen a collapse of many of, of the business, and it's really hard for them now to plan ahead because um, that was the big, the major season. What happened is, uh, there was no EU support in terms of the market measures that, that could be put forward like a EU program. Uh, they are still waiting for some of the support for the business. There was nevertheless some national initiatives and, and there was some state aid that was approved and some member states have taken uh, some measures to support their national production. But this was not a EU uh, framework. This was not uh, across Europe. Um, and we have some concerns. We we believe in EU policies. We believe in EU action. And he, the sector was suffering in the whole Europe was not only in a few countries. And um, I wanted to turn the conversation a little bit to, to labour now. So during the first wave of the pandemic, we saw uh, a really intense interest in workers' rights um, and labour shortages and uh, a kind of a renewed focus on, on how we can kind of support the workforce in agriculture. But do you think this interest um, is being maintained or is it kind of dropping under the radar somewhat in the second wave? Mm-hmm. And, and how can we maintain this momentum to kind of build on this this moment? Yeah, certainly the first measures taken during the first wave, they, they help. Um, but we have been really affected in the second wave too. Um, the main difference is the member states have taken concrete measures to alleviate some of the labor charters, uh, seeking to ensure freedom of mo- movement for agriculture professionals. Uh, as I mentioned before, state aid was put in place, uh, but it's necessary to complement with the EU recover uh, plan. The guidelines enter in force. Uh, there are some uh, movement and quarantine periods. So th- this, this really help um, on the transportation for workers, um, uh, et cetera. But um, the issue is still very important for the sector, in particular in this second wave. Um, it's, it's only now that now there is a more predictability and measures in place. Um, this, this topic seems to lose relevancy. However, in some EU countries uh, where it's still not possible to travel to work coming from a third country, such as Estonia or Latvia, uh, labor shortage remains as one of the most pressing issues. And as long as the EU does not apply common standards for third country agriculture wor- workers, the issue will depend on the bilateral negotiation between countries. Um, and moreover, uh, seasonal workers will gain in relevance again next year when new harvesting periods start. Thanks, Daniel. Very insightful. I mean, we are over uh, for the, the podcast, the weekly podcast, but... Uh, I don't know if Xenia told you, but we're also preparing um, another podcast mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the coming weeks, let's say. Okay. And it's on the agri-trade. Oh. I mean, the idea is to to explain the peculiarity of uh, agri-trade for farmers. So basically, the general attitude of farmers when it comes to trade deals. Mm-hmm. But again, why negotiating or having a deal, a trade deal with... Um, Europe is different, basically. So again, the peculiarity. Mm-hmm. Again, for instance, one thing that we mentioned and we we ask EFSA about it, it's, you know, the, the bar is set quite high when it comes to food safety, you know? Yes. Uh, uh, so it's, uh, you know, as, as an entering condition, it could be difficult, but even, even positive for, for other partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, to cope with it. And what we want to ask you is to basically explain the peculiarity of the agri-trade with the EU um, when it comes to farmers. In in terms of agri-food trade, uh, we are today uh, the, the world leaders in terms of agri-food exports. Uh, we are also 
the f the first or the second um, importer of of agri commodities and and rare commodities around the world. Um, so our approach to trade is that we we need to develop a level playing field across all operators in international trade, um, and we must promote all aspects of sustainability and extend these benefits of trade to the farm level. Today, uh, many farmers they still don't understand how, how the benefits are translated economically at the farm level. And we need to make sure that in the trade policy um, that we that they will uh, understand this benefit, they will get this benefit. Um, increasingly, uh, our, our foodstuffs are now are, are being are very renowned for their sustainability. We have high levels, uh, uh, high standards in terms of animal welfare, uh, food safety, um, environment, animal health, and this is recognized by, by our trade partners. Um, so the EU framework is actually encouraging the agri-food sector to invest in added value products. Um, and this, uh, of course, we have some prospects in terms of certain uh, sectors in Europe. We have, um, for example, olive oil, we have dairy, uh, some cereals, some of the meat sector that, that has prospects, uh, good prospects, and, and they are recognized internationally, they are selling. Wine is another um, uh, sector. So it is important that if we want to make this production potential a reality, it's, it's fundamental that we need to look for uh, new outlets outside the European Union's uh, single market and, and develop also non-food outlets. So that's why we have been supportive of, for example, uh, you Canada, you Mexico, uh, you Japan, Korea, um, and very much of the multilateral aspect. The, the multilateral uh, is fundamental for agri-food sector. If we find an agreement at multilateral level, it, it is the framework that would allow uh, us to develop this level playing field across all the operators international trade. And it's also a, a, an area where we can promote the all aspects of sustainability. And so we are supportive of the trade agreements as long as they are balanced within the agriculture uh, chapter. Um, as long as it contributes, contributes to the overall valorization of the EU produce, um, and also as long as there is properly enforcing of the trade provisions, including, for example, SPS and the protection of geographical indications. Um, and so trade can, can actually provide um, a, a balance for the EU market. It can balance out product categories and ensure sustainability. Um, but exports of agri-food products are not the objective per se. Uh, the objective is to create added value um, that will translate into benefits for farmers and agri-cooperatives. Uh, so um, we know that EU framework is increasingly pushing uh, production costs. And if this is not taken in international trade negotiations, uh, despite the, the EU leading role in those areas, uh, it will be very difficult for European farmers and cooperatives. So we need to be treated fairly. I think that that will be the most important. If we face uh, tighter restrictions on cultivation or higher production standards due to the EU framework, talking about Green Deal, farm to fork, common agriculture policy, biodiversity strategy, then we expect to be treated fairly. So if you conclude a trade agreement, uh, then the commission must take into account that there is a difference between consumer standards and production standards. Uh, and from our perspective, for example, the EU Mercosur agreement clearly fails to deliver on this aspect. Um, so we are not against trade. We have actually been supportive of the EU trade agenda. We have supported uh, many bilateral trade agreements, but they have to be balanced to the agri-food sector. I think that is our main approach to, to trade. And now for the agri-food news from the capitals this week, starting with Croatia, where on the back of an increased interest in reconnecting consumers with local food, Croatian citizens are being offered the chance to be involved in an innovative agri-digital project known as a Gruntech. And Euractiv Croatia took a closer look at what this entails, and you can find the article on the Euractiv website. In Germany, the Agricultural Minister Julia Klockner has called an emergency summit to address the coronavirus-related issues in Germany's pork market. So on Friday, uh, on the 27th of November, she will meet with 16 state agricultural ministers to address the issue of overweight pigs that are now piling up on farms due to coronavirus outbreaks at the county's uh, largest slaughterhouses. The excess supply has caused pork prices also to plummet. 
So the meeting will likely focus primarily on uh, increasing slaughtering capacity in the short term, which could involve states allowing for more flexible regulations on working hours for staff at meatpacking plants, and also subsidies for private warehousing uh, will also be a topic they'll discuss. And in France, uh, the avian flu is making a comeback in France. So in Corsica and a few other regions, including the lot, there are several cases of bird flu that have been detected in different regions of France. And this has led the Ministry of Agriculture to classify the entire country as high risk. So new measures have now been imposed on breeders and they now have to protect their farms with nets uh, and different measures are being taken. And there's also being measures taken on the release and transport of feathered game birds. And in the UK, the Farmers Union of Wales has branded the UK government's decision to slash Wales's uh, agricultural budget as a Brexit betrayal this week. So this comes on the back of uh, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak revealing uh, that the spending review on the budget will be cut by uh, at least 95 million for the coming financial year. And so responding to the news, the National Farmers Union president, Manette Batters, highlighted that for farmers in England, it's good news the government has confirmed its manifesto pledge to maintain existing levels of farm support. But Welsh farmers appear to be facing significant funding gaps of this 95 million compared to existing EU funding. She has said this is something that's unacceptable and not consistent with the government's agenda. And uh, in Ireland, microfinance Ireland is making the Brexit business loan available to support small businesses through the current Brexit challenges. Loans may be used for short-term working capital and or required business changes as a result of Brexit. Uh, The chair of the IFA uh, farm business, uh, Rosemary McDonagh, Uh, welcome the news saying that this announcement is timely and provides farmers with access to funding to cover their operating expenses during uh, the ongoing uncertainty caused by Brexit. And we move to Italy, where the 21st of November was the National Day of the Tree. According to the 2018 Forest uh, Census uh, published a year ago by the Ministry of Agricultural Policies, 36.4% of the country is covered by trees. So we're talking about almost uh, 11 million hectares. And that means there are uh, about 200 trees for every Italian. Uh, Italy has never been so rich in forests as uh, it is now uh, because such an extension of forest on national territory has not happened since. that's, That's impressive. The Byzantine Gothic War, which dates back to 1500 years ago, that's what the main Italian financial daily, Il Sole 24 Ore, uh, reported. And lastly, in Poland, uh, the Polish government will call over uh, 900,000 hens in a farm in Western Poland due to a bird flu outbreak, which was discovered uh, last Tuesday on 24. Of November, uh, the Polish press agency, um, who quoted the uh, local veterinary uh, authorities, uh, said that the call started actually on Thursday and may continue for up to six days. This week, the AgriFood podcast is produced by Euractiv's AgriFood team, Gerardo Fortuna and Natasha Food, with the technical support of Evi Chiori. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest agricultural news from the EU. And this podcast is also available on all major streaming platforms. That includes Amazon, Apple, Spotify and Stitcher. So that's all from us. I'm Natasha Foote. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Mm-hmm.